Hey everybody, it's Tyler. So, I've got a daughter. Yeah, Eliana Rose, or Ella Rose, was born on June 10th. And that's delayed this episode by uh, a little bit here. Now, we did record this episode before June 10th, but the days in which I would have been editing this episode, you know, took place when we were in the hospital. And we were actually still at the hospital. Our baby is still in the NICU, although she may be discharged uh, this weekend. This weekend being June 25th or so. So thanks for your patience. Uh, happy to get this episode out. And then thank you for your continued patience while we get our lives in order and get back into our regular schedule of, of episodes here. All right, let's get her started. Hello and welcome to Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where two 30-something gamers examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular and niche RPGs. It's like a book club, except your mom just doesn't get it. Yeah. This is season one, and we're talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. My name is Tyler, and I'm joined by my friend Nate. We invite you to join us on this adventure by playing Xenoblade alongside these episodes where we will explore the game chapter by chapter. And in this episode, we're getting into chapter 11, where the group crosses Sword Valley. Nate, how are we feeling today? We're feeling all right. I already have a feeling that this is going to be a two-part episode for various reasons. When I look at the overall notes I took for this one, it is 18% of my entire document for being on chapter 11 11 separations this one is taking up nearly a fifth of my document so fair warning probably going to chop this one up (laughs) right out the gate fair warning yeah uh, as you've probably noticed we've occasionally been having longer conversations where we split up an episode into two parts we're going to try to do less of that and instead just have episodes where they're not really cut in half we actually do stop partway through a chapter here i think that just makes for a more holistic uh, listening experience so i look forward to that in the future i'm glad you're feeling good nate i'm feeling pretty good too I was out earlier with some of my friends doing Wing Wednesday. Every now and then we go out and we do Wing Wednesday. We are positively encyclopedic about wings, chicken wings, in the area of the state that I live in. And we went to this place that has a $28 three-pound chicken wing bucket with a side of Cajun fries. And we call it the fuck it bucket because you know what? Fuck it. Three pounds of chicken wings. Are you a fan of hot ones? Do you light it up real hot? Yeah, I watch watch hot ones. Not, Not lately, but I've seen that. I, I couldn't do it. I hate it. It takes all of the enjoyment out of food. Food should be a uh, peaceful, unoffensive experience. Zen-like, maybe. I've done I've done those spicy challenges. I grow hot peppers in the backyard. I've done those crazy challenges at restaurants. I once ate 20 ounces of Carolina Reaper chili in under 10 minutes as a means to get like my Polaroid on the wall and a free t-shirt and like a beverage of my choice. And let me tell you, Reaper chili in your nasal cavity after having thrown it up a few hours later is the worst thing you can possibly have in your nasal cavity that burns i i'd believe it i i I just can't do it so yeah that's me anyways all right yeah so we ended the last chapter with shulk again chasing after a giant robot flying in the sky wondering how are you actually going to follow after that uh shulk they got wings you don't shulk does still not have jet engines on his person yes so that's where we left it and um sensibly this chapter starts out with them standing in the field discussing their next moves like uh real people (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, right. The subtitle I have for this chapter, I put, Your princess is in another castle. Your princess is in another fortress, on another titan. I feel the same sense of being strung along uh, as Mario was <laughs> so many years ago. Yeah, you know, these antagonists are enormous mechanical monsters, and they are constantly engaging with us and running away from us. Nate, when in this game have we ever ran away from a mechon? I, there's probably some instances where they're like, we have to go now, get out. But um, we're usually tackling them head on. I think that was one of our first episodes was, you know, you got assaulted by this giant overwhelming force of robots with missiles and lasers and giant claws. And then Shulk and Ryan are just leaving town. They're like, yeah, we're going to go get him. And it's like, wait, wait, what? With, with what? <laughs> with, uh, <laughs> I guess just the Monado. Mm-hmm. Ryan consoles Shulk. Don't feel bad that Fiora's been whisked away again. Simply be happy that she's alive. And I guess that makes some sense. And Elvis reiterates that they flew in the direction of Galahad Fortress. Now recall that Galahad Fortress is a base uh, of Mechons on the other side of Sword Valley. And Sword Valley is the land bridge in between the two Titans, Bionis and Mechonis. But this land bridge is in fact the weapon that Mechonis used in the fight in which the two Titans ceased moving or living even, uh, however many years ago. So yeah, we got the little pep talk. Ryan told us to get it together, Shulk. I also noticed that um, this whole conversation, like Alvis has this cat-like shape to his mouth, which makes it look like he's always grinning. And uh, <laughs> despite the somber events that just happens, you know, actually maybe he is just happy that this moment is happening, that events are going the way that maybe he wants them to. So, you know, mm. I have some stuff left in Valak to uh, wrap up because that ending happened abruptly. You just kind of walk right into that cutscene and then things happen. Right. As a follow-up to last episode, we had a little bit of, like, a missed connection and what we were talking about in, in sliding down slides and you were talking about, like, the ecological balance of the Nopon there and everything. It's because I missed that segment. Similarly to you missing the slide that I did and finding the three sage mountaintop or whatever the hell that was. Summit. I found the hollow bone where you you slide down a slide and you do like a jumping moment thing a couple times and you get to a platform where that quest is to achieve ecological balance. Right? Yeah. So I, I did that and I had another little X Games moment um, but this time as I was sliding down I hit like a little piece of geometry on the slide and was like instantly shot airborne and then I was airborne for like four seconds as I'm going down the slide I land on the slide still so I'm falling and I'm falling onto a uh, like vertically aligned piece of geometry but the instant my feet touch the ground my characters all die (laughs) (laughs) immediately because of the the code logic of you were in the air, you were falling, and now you you touched something. So um, Dale Earnhardt would be proud that I died doing what I love. Somebody might find my Dale Earnhardt joke there a little crude. I will say that I was a huge fan as as a kid. I went and saw him and his car at Marquardt Motors in Chippewa Falls as they passed through Wisconsin um, one time. And uh, I cried when I heard that he passed at the Daytona 500. So that's that. I was playing as Sharla. She instantly died. My experience with Sharla is that she's always like a, a part of these death mishaps. Also, another fun fact about this segment is that if you kill an elite that is a subject of a quest without actually being on that stage of the quest, you get to go back and kill him again. Mm. Fun, right? Fun. Instead of them just giving you the item you need or advancing the plot, you get to do it all over. So I, I killed the giant spider twice. Now 
now. And then next, I have to kill the Chilkin boss, who is in the spider egg of the giant spider thing. Oh, yep, yeah. And um, nearing death, the boss gets so pissed at Ryan and Dunbin for, for aggroing everything else in the room with their spin moves that he just gives up, refills his health bar, and returns to patrolling an area he wasn't scripted to patrol because he was in a web. Hmm. I essentially have to kill him twice as well. I'm done with Valak at this point. I'm over it. It was fun. Melia, bring a coat next time. Shulk, bring a snowboard. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. And so we are going to say farewell to Valak Mountain and cross into a new zone, Sword Valley. When we cross the zones, the environmental biomes changes rapidly. We were in a snowy wasteland. Now we're in this craggy highlands sort of area. We can see Bionis' shoulder, head, and chest. The team points out that this is the Makonis' sword, but I don't see a sword. It's the ground. It's the huge land bridge in front of us. It's difficult to see in this shot, but this land bridge stretches for miles and there's this domed building in the distance and that is Galahad Fortress. I find it strange that the Makana sword doesn't have a special name like the Bionis sword does. Have you kind of, I don't know, what's that all about? I mean, we've been talking about the Monado for ages, but the Makana sword is just the Makana sword. That's a good point. There isn't a counterbalance, countermeasure. A, a lot of games, a lot of series do that thing where it's like the first game you have the the legendary item or the super special thing and then the second game somebody shows up who's just like the hero except he's the bad guy version of the hero and he has the opposing special weapon legendary item thing that you have and so you got to duke it out if you could name the mechana sword what would you name it um i don't know that i know my jewish mysticism well enough to give it an appropriate name that matches the monad in gnosticism all that and i haven't read up on that so I don't have a good name off the top of my head. Me neither. The Makana Sword. Galahad. Maybe it's Galahad. Yeah. That's kind of, that's cool and biblical. Sure. And we can look that up later and see if it actually is. I don't know. So the team is kind of marveling at the majesty of this place. It's, it's hard to understand that this valley is a weapon just kind of frozen in time in mid swing, striking Bionis here. And Melia says what I think is the most undersold revelation of the entire game so far. She says that her father once told her that the Mechanis absorbs Bionis's ether through through the sword. Father once told me that the Makonis absorbs the ether of the Bionis and uses it for sustenance. And they kind of, hmm, that's interesting and keep on moving. And we'll learn more about that shortly. But if that's true, that fills in so many gaps about like the lore of the world. It's thrown away like a like a real minor side comment here. I feel like Shulk and everyone would turn their heads to her and be like, what? What, what do you mean by that? Where did you hear that? So the sword is siphoning um, ether energy and she'd be like, yeah, yeah, you know, it, that's what I heard. And they, they'd be going, oh my goodness, that's so, that's so massive, but it's not, it's completely undersold. And I just feel like the, the teammates didn't have an appreciation of this this revelation here and um it's going to turn out that was true i mean there is no so what we're saying is that there's no equivalent energy life source powering mechanis uh my questions are is mechanis lifeless without it even before their titan fight so is ether at the core of everything it seems like this revelation just ought to be drummed up so much harder than it really was at the moment yeah the the sword of mechanis is drawing energy from Bionis, uh, the drawing the ether away from it but it, it's revealed to be like you know that 
they're the bad guys, that's a bad thing, that's whatever. But if we look at what we've learned from the Hyantia, they're always talking about the Bionis' ether stirring, threatening to wake it up and destroy everything, and they're all worried about that, they're monitoring that, they're monitoring the Monado in that respect. So it's like, if you're drawing away all that energy, wouldn't that be a good thing? And the, the giant titan stays dormant? It gives me a lot of questions, a lot of angles to analyze it from. Mm-hmm. And like you said, nobody really bats an eye at it. It's like, maybe we shouldn't destroy this giant base and just leave it do its thing because this is the status quo. This is the way the world works now. So mm-hmm. I, I also have a theory time note here. Sure. This is relating back to talking about Xeno Gears as well. What if Bionis is like one of the giant angel fetus babies we saw at the beginning of Xeno Gears, except this is what happens when it actually grows up. Like the planet obliterating Deus-like being. Oh, Deus? Mm-hmm. Again, we're like fully aware of there being no connection between Xeno games where we understand that, but it's like in Gundam, you have Char Aznable and Zex Marquis. Now, Tyler, you won't know that reference, but they're essentially the same character reinterpreted into a new series in a lot of ways. And uh, they're spiritual successors and reinterpretation. So when I'm looking at this kind of scenario, it's like, what if this like God being came to this world in order to subjugate it and absorb all its energy? And then like the denizens of the world were like, no, fuck you, stop that. They made a giant robot, stabbed a sword into it. And it's like, yeah, you can't do your thing if I'm drawing all your energy away with a sword. So that's my theory time right now. I think back to what Golden Face said at the end of the last chapter, he is responsible for like freeing the world from the theory of Bionis, but they're sucking Bionis's blood. <laughs> I don't know how to reconcile that, but that's a thing. Anyways, we walk literally 100 feet into another cutscene. Alvis has queued up a high Antia fighter to drop us supplies, and Dixon's here. Well, in my notes, I say, fuck, Dixon. Alvis brought Dixon. Looks like you lot have been having fun without me. This is my, uh, I've elaborated on this nightmare a little bit of like being constantly led by other figures, my motivations and things just like puppet stringing me the whole time. Not as a gamer, but like as somebody who's trying to connect with my main character and like get into their motivations. And so previously that character was like Dixon and I was okay with it because he seemed like just this helpful chap, you know, but as more and more revelations came out, I started questioning Dixon. Then I was like, all right, Alvis, he's a cool guy. He's not doing that. Then it turns out Alvis is kind of a manipulator in this regard. Now we have the two of them like bumping fists <laughs> and double puppeteering my main character. And I'm just like, fuck, no, this is this is not what I want right now. Of course, because I'm the third party, the characters are all for it. They love Dixon. He's a... He's a right old chap to them. He really is. Dixon heard about Kalyan's assembly for an army. He heeded the call and he even expressed interest to lead the Homs faction of that army. Uh, but then he heard that we were going to Sword Valley and so he wanted to meet us. He's got supplies to give us. Nope, he's got supplies to sell us, sell us for money. He's a shop too. Yeah, and here's here's what happened. Here's the situation I was in. Was I finally got to the point where I picked up a material piece in this chapter and I it finally says I can't accept it because my inventory is full, 500 out of 500. Oh yeah. I have 150 plus gems and a total of 15 gem slots across my party. <laughs> so I have 10 times as many gems as I actually need. Jeez Louise. Whenever I get the opportunity to slot something, I just go with like the linear main stat increase, like give muscle to Ryan, mm-hmm. for example. Side note, uh, to my side note, as I give muscle to Ryan, I recently posted a very saucy uh, Ryan pick of him looking very 
very muscular, like just completely tapped out on muscle gems. In the uh, situation we described last episode of him hanging out at the Valak Mountain Hot Springs with his large handcuffs. So if you want to see that, come visit us on our Discord. Mm -hmm. And to that side note, back to the gems. So the random situational ones seem to be like a bit you hit or miss when it comes to the gems, whereas a stat is always going to be useful. HP will never not be useful, but like days resist, it's like, well, I'm not always being dazed, but I am always being fucking hit, you know? So like, I always just go with the linear gems, if that makes sense. So I don't need the 150 extra other gems. So I go to the forge and craft for like 30 minutes until I notice that I'm kind of dozing off doing this. I now have 200 plus gems for my 15 total slots. I've barely made a dent in the materials pile. I now have 437 out of 500 material uh, space used. So instead I just go to the vendor and I spend two minutes holding the rapid selling button to sell my entire stock of materials. Maybe that's a terrible idea, but I just have zero tactile feedback on how gems are affecting my experience at this moment. and Or the value of currency. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I will drop a million, I don't know, what is it called? Is it gold? What is it? I don't know. Coin? Coin. Whatever. <laughs> Yeah. Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Uh, I'll ju I'll drop a million on stuff, and then I'll sell the stuff I don't need, and I'll be back up to like eight hundred thousand. And it's like it's just it's coming and it's going as fast as I get it. I use it, and then I get more, and it's just like it's not tangible to me or meaningful in any way. Selling everything in the gem pile nets me four hundred and seven thousand gold I didn't have before. Mm -hmm. I just feel like there's a a lack of a, a lot of these systems that, like having feedback in a tangible way that matters to me when it comes to like gearing or gems or whatever uh, leveling up and abilities like it, it all kind of just meshes together to me an example would be that it's like if you're playing final fantasy 7 and you increase a new weapon and your damage goes from 74 to 115 that's a number you process you took your turn and you're doing roughly you know 40 50 percent more damage right and your your brain sees that and it like digests that but when i have like six numbers in the thousands just flying on my screen and disappearing as fast as they showed up change from like let's say that number is 4212 and that changes from 6521 but you put that with like six other numbers next to it all at the same time i don't digest any of that information the main way in which i like track my progress is how fast i'm beating somebody's ass on their health bar right right and so that's where like gems kind of leave me not feeling a major difference gear upgrades don't give me a feeling of major difference increasing my skills you know i don't really get the feedback of like my numbers going up the the changes being made like i don't feel stronger ever i just feel like oh i am not strong enough for this area and then i go to a different area and i'm killing everything in like two seconds so uh, that's it leaves a lot to be desired for me so that's why i don't mind just dumping all my gem stock and going with just creating the generic ones mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense so after this we can quote tell dixon what happened that's a that's a selection you can say yes or no to i think i'm just i think i'm just making shit up but you can quote tell Dixon what happened. And another cutscene plays out. Dixon is not surprised that it was Mumcard that attacked Colony 9. <clears throat> and he kind of uh, mutters something cryptic to himself and Shulk goes, what was that? And as usual, Dixon goes, 
There's nothing. I'm just, I'm just muttering. <clears throat> What's that? Oh, no, I'm just muttering. I'm just muttering cryptic shit to myself, and nobody knows anything about me, and I fought in that battle a year ago, and God knows what happened in between now and then, but... Things are getting interesting. Sorry? Oh, nothing. He, he does say things are getting interesting. Like, uh, it's an interesting fact when he was told that, hey, mechons are just a homs in in frames. Mm, okay, you have the quote then. That that was the cryptic language. Yeah, he says things are getting interesting. Like, oh, wow, that's, a, that's an interesting fact. That's curious. Hmm. hmm. Okay. Instead of, like, his entire brain being melted by that revelation, like, oh my god, we've been killing our kin the entire time? Like, no. He's he's alright with it. Also, in the prompt for the assault of Galahad, Dunbin tells Shulk that we will seize our destiny. So, I think there's a little bit of Dunbin still, like, uh, you know, he's here to rescue Fiora and follow through on the attack on Colony 9, but I think he's, like, reliving the actions of a year ago. He's, uh, bringing brought to that place a little bit of payback for mm -hmm. the events of Sword Valley before, losing his arm, like finishing the job this time because to see that they still have a fortress and the place is teeming with Mechon probably upsets him a little bit after everything he's sacrificed. And this is reiterated at the end of the scene here where the team marches into the, the more hostile areas of Sword Valley and Dunbin pauses. The team walks ahead and he pauses and he thinks in his mind, he goes, one year ago this battle took place here. We will seize our destiny. Isn't that right, Shulk? One year on. Now, at last, we will seize our destiny. Isn't that right, Shulk? So, something's going on internally in Dunbin's head, but I uh, don't know what that is. Another thing going on in Dunbin's head, he knows how to get into Galahad Fortress. He says we will infiltrate via the ether inlets. Our objective is to reach one of those ether channels. But I had to ask myself, like, how did you arrive at this plan? Now, he was there at the battle one year ago, so maybe that makes some sense. But to be like, no, this is how we're going to do it. Uh, oh, to hell with that. Well, and they just had it revealed to them that these are ether inlets by Melia. <laughs> So, uh, you know, there's that. Yeah, you, th you think that at the, at the Battle of Sword Valley, they would have discovered this ether siphoning operation. Yeah. As we kind of finish the reunion, I'm prompted again to decide on my party for the coming events. And I go with Shulk, Sharla, and Melia. And I'm reminded of the prompt of Final Fantasy VII. When you leave Midgar, you get to pick who your party is for the first time. And I chose Cloud, Tifa, and Eris. Then Barrett comments, thought you might do something like that in response to spending some quality time with the ladies. Thank you for getting someone! So I, in my head, I, I picked my party and I roleplayed that Dixon had something to say of the same vein because he said uh, some mildly creepy old man comments so far. We failed to mention that the store that Dixon operates includes weapons that are designed to cut Mechon, uh, so we can deal more than one or two points of damage to these Mechon in this zone without the use of the Monado's AoE Macon damage ability. But they kind of suck. Right, yeah, th that, which is interesting. So it does have that property to these abilities, but the actual damage values are depressed compared to the non-Mechon damaging weapons in our inventory. It's an interesting juxtaposition. So we might just be using these for this zone, or if we keep marching into Mechonis um, land, maybe there will be a sort of a soft reset, a sort of stat crunch of our gear to accommodate for the difference between 
between fighting on Mechonis and fighting on Bionis. Yeah. We transition into a contemplative Aegil scene. Now, I was confused on how to say this name, but if I'm going to go by Fiora's voice actor here um, in pronouncing his name, it is the word egg and the word eel, right? Is that what you're getting from it? Aegil. Yeah. So we get a contemplative Aegil scene. He's flashbacking to a scene of Zanza, our uh, Monado forging Titan. His beard is 100 feet shorter than when we last saw him. Yeah, and he is standing upright, unbound, looking on at Bionis's head. And a there's a cut to the Mechon sword slamming against Bionis. We talked about that earlier. The the strike being delivered by a unnamed sword. Agil says, "Why would Zanza release the Monado? He knows it's a double-edged sword." So Zanza apparently has some sort of plot to do something, but um, it would bring danger to himself and his efforts in response. I don't know. It's vague. It's a very vague statement. Mm-hmm. He's also disappointed about how a face has escaped his control and acted alone. Of course, referring to face nemesis. He says the faces are no longer useful. Maybe it's time to take them out. Now that the Monado has been freed, it appears the usefulness of the faces has come to an end. However, there may be something to be learned by challenging the boy with the faced Mechon. He also says they only act as fodder now, but I think this is confirming, you know, we've already kind of confirmed it for the most part, but it's confirming our little theory we had of the Monado having the ability to cut Homs, which it didn't have before, Mm -hmm. being the the reason that the faces are useless now, because they are not, the little, the Hom bodies in the inside are not providing that invulnerability anymore. Speaking of Hom bodies, this scene is just Eggle. He's thinking to himself. And I think back to Metal Face, who hopped out of his cockpit and is, you know, has full agency over his body. And, you know, why is an eggle doing that? I mean, why isn't anybody kind of doing that? Is it weird to pilot a mech con and you're thinking to yourself in this room and as you're thinking to yourself, you're on this mech con and you're walking a couple paces to the left, scratching your mech on chin, thinking about this, elucidating about that, turning to the side and thinking about the next thing. And it just seems like these really simple homish, humanish things you wouldn't spend time controlling a Mechon over. Exactly. And there's an aspect of they're so elaborately designed that their mobility is actually quite less than a regular person's. It's the same kind of thing when you were a kid at recess, you'd come inside. Well, I should say it's the same thing as being a kid in Wisconsin during winter and recess. You come inside and you get out of those snow pants and the puffy jacket and the hat and you just, your body can finally breathe again and you're so happy to, you're not happy to be going back to class, but you are happy to not be rolled up in the Michelin man trappings anymore. I like that analogy. Yeah, it's like wearing snow pants and a full body snowsuit plus two toboggans on your back and another two toboggans on each arm. Yes. I have no doubt that Aegil watches Real Housewives of Alchemoth and trims his bonsai tree in full mechon armor. Thinking about life, thinking about the Monado boy. Sitting inside your tower, inside your giant robot, you've got nothing better to do. You've got no other pressing matter at the moment just he's coming here i'll just stand around for a few days i guess i don't know how long this took us yeah right i'm doing a sword shit now 
we're in the zone. It's a big brown mass of a uh, little more structure than Bionis, less uh, expression of life represented, right? Yeah, impressive stone carvings on tall rock walls, stony scaffolding hanging over cliffs connected by ramps. Nate, did this place look like Broken Shore to you from Legion? Um, I did not make the connection. At night, at night. I did not make the connection, no. This looks a little bit more structured. Legion's demon design was like, they have all these ships and structures and things, but it's kind of made out of like this twisted, malleable, dark matter energy stuff in a way. So mm -hmm. yeah, this looks more structured, but it does beg the question, why does a sword need a whole like community and living structures and bases and forward bases and all that stuff on it? It seems like the purpose of the sword, he wasn't just trouncing about whacking people with this thing. This was designed with the very, very specific purpose of stabbing by honest and then going about to doing its thing. Mm -hmm. I um, do battle with a M104 Guardian. It's an absolutely colossal enemy and I barely come out on top in this fight with it. Lots of thwarted visions of my own death during the fight, but I think this is the largest enemy I've ever fought in the game up to this point. I love those guys, the M104 Fortress units. They're freaking cool. They're like 100 feet tall. They're bug-like, mantis-like with a huge cannon on their back. And they patrol around the large valley areas of Sword Valley, which sort of necessitates, creates the steerage for you to use those scaffoldings above the valley to advance through the zone. They were cool. I love that. I mean, yeah, I got in a fight with them, but I ran as fast as I could and I certainly didn't defeat any of them. They were, they were high level elites. Did you fight? Did you kill one? I did manage to kill one. It took a while though. <gasps> wow, dude. Dude. Yeah, there is an element of us having to use those depressed uh, value weapons, so fights take a little bit longer. But I'm kind of like, I'm blown away of the difficulty curve of enemies I fight throughout this whole chapter in that previous chapters we kind of found ourselves stomping about because of our side quest mm -hmm. exposure and leveling up and everything. Mm -hmm. But this one, everything feels pretty equally matched to me and I'm needing to engage all of my skills and everything. Makes me wonder how somebody who doesn't 100% all of the content in the game up to this point would have arrived here and how they would have fared against these enemies if there would be a kind of a hard check on hey do you want to go back and do some other shit because you're getting wrecked right now you're right the level advantage we enjoyed in the hyentia zones is all but disappeared here I receive a impromptu quest along the route to capture a fortress by beating its commander, and I do so. Mm -hmm. Again, these battles are really tough, and there's another location that prompts me to kill an elite. This time, the group with the two girls don't really cut it, so I need to swap in Ryan for some beefiness. Mm -hmm. These kinds of fights kind of inform me that it's almost never worth it to do the chain attack. Actually, this whole chapter has been informing me to just not ever do the chain attack. I don't know if there's something I'm missing about the value of the chain attack because I need that meter for battle resurrections way more than any of the like additional damage I get from a stupid chain attack. Uh, yeah, I definitely leveraged more resurrection abilities on this chapter than probably any other chapter beforehand. So I, I didn't feel exactly the way you do, but I did, you know, I was definitely in that direction. Yeah, when I see that meter full, I just bank it in case something bad happens because it's like, okay, yeah, I could do a chain attack for like 16,000 damage or I could just wait 
five seconds for people to just auto attack that much damage on their own and you know i guess i play more defensively naturally in rpgs than the go all out method there are remnants of the sword valley battle still here there are dead husks of mechon lying around on the field farther along in the zone we see a destroyed homs gunship that has three collectible items inside it the the past is still here in the present and i thought that was pretty neat where we still kind of feel the echoes of the battle as we're traversing the zone here Another neat little visual storytelling cue is that you can see placed throughout the zone, those repointed spires with like a circular depression in the center. It's kind of a little tower there. They're all kind of equipped at various points throughout the sword, jutting up into the air. It's the same design as that place we talked about on Valak Mountain, the Mechanus Wound. We talked about this really interesting structure embedded in the Bionis in Valak. And we were like, why didn't they talk about what the is or get into that well that structure is all over the place in here so i'm almost wondering if like you remember how in the beginning of final fantasy 10 sin had uh it would shoot off like these uh, like i don't even know how to describe them just these these beings that like it, it would slam into the wall and then these like flaps would open up from the being and then all of these little mm-hmm. bug beings would just yeah, sh- yeah. flutter out from it like uh, and fly all over the place i almost picture like the sword swinging and striking and as it does, all of these like Mechanus blades shoot out and shudder from the sword and impact themselves into Bionis on striking. That's a cool idea. I hadn't thought about that. And I like your pickup on how the Mechanus wound takes the same sort of geometrical shapes as they do in this zone. I did not notice that. What a cool pickup. Likewise, in this zone, um, there's a Monado wound. There's a gouge in Sword Valley near a dead end past the ether storage area. But why is it called a wound? So the Mechanus wound is literally on Bionis's body, but the Monado wound is on the blade itself. We don't typically call a scratch on a blade a wound, but we do here. I don't know. It would be the Monado chink. Yeah. I switched my party around again, and now I have a party of Sharla, Dunbin, and Melia. I'm, I'm trying to play Sharla a little bit more, and I'm trying to build relationships as I go through the chapter, even if it's the encouragement segments that get me hearts. Mm-hmm. That's how I do it. When I realize I have a lot of mobs to fight, I switch my party up. Uh, whoever's got the lowest affinity, trying to build that up. You know how I've joked about the Sharla shower yes. <laughs> reference in the past episodes? She just talks about it all the time. As gamers, we're used to people repeating the same catchphrases but this game has an interesting thing of with different parties you get different responses to those catchphrases and I like to lean into the absurdity of some of those responses so Sharla again saying I could really use a shower right now Dunbin's response is but we mustn't be careless (laughs) and then Melia's response is we must not be reckless so I'm wondering how careless and reckless are Sharla's showers is she just like in the middle of battle in the middle of exploring a dangerous area, maybe during a thunderstorm or something. She's just like, nope, sorry, shower break, guys. Is she an OCD shower? I don't know, but uh, I find that interaction pretty hilarious and probably the subject of my next interpretive artwork of expressing some of the more absurd moments that I find in this game via my skill 
said. Right, because back in the Machina Forest episode, you had said that Charlotte said, I can really go with a shower right now. And then she lapped 2,000 feet off of a sheer cliff wall into the lake below. Yeah, we'll go with she leapt and that I didn't accidentally push her with my character model. Mm-hmm. That was a careless and reckless want of a shower. So yeah, maybe maybe I'll do it a, a little bit of a, a picture of a reckless, careless shower in Machna Forest for you guys on the Discord. Mm-hmm. With Shulk doing a booty bump. Shout out to our Discord. Come come shoot the shit with us and uh, have a good time. There's couples of us. Couples. Yeah. There are multiple other people. You don't have to just listen to us. Mm-hmm. Also, um, the further we go in, we're finding more and more places where we're finding these streams or pools of green liquid. The Melia's assertion that they were drawing energy from Bionis. This is revealed later, but it was at this point I was already coming to this conclusion through just, the, again, the visual storytelling. So there's more and more of these the further we go in of these green liquid pools, streams, processing areas, etc. And here's another example of Charla's uh, shower woes. <laughs> Here, she slips and falls to her death as she accidentally paths into one of these streamlines in an effort to catch up to my jumping some of these gaps. She just walks right into them and gets stuck. So yet another RIP to Charla and her careless ground traversal. Do we have to talk about the music? The music in this zone is spectacular. It's foreboding. It feels wild and dangerous. And I feel a necessary level of caution, like anything could happen at any moment. I definitely feel exposed. It's a nervous, it is such a good track. I'm really, really pleased with this one. I'm going to put it down as probably one of my favorites because it really embodies this zone where we are we're no longer in Bionis. We are not in Kansas anymore. We are pressing forward into the unknown more than we have ever before. And the music really embodies this and one underscore that this was a good one yeah and i'll talk about this later but we also get new battle music at one point during this chapter and it is a doozy but we'll get into that when it actually shows up so after securing a couple checkpoints uh, nate mentioned them earlier there was first dolgen outpost and then enalga control base those were those surprise quests where we had to defeat a pretty challenging elite in both of them to secure those areas which then transform into a teleport point. And then the third one is going to be the ether storage area, where five huge aqueducts empty green glowing ether ooze into a large reservoir in the middle of the area. And then that reservoir outlets deeper into the zone in the direction we're traveling. It is a pretty cool centerpiece to the zone. And we travel alongside this canal of green ooze to move forward. It's sci-fi awesomeness, this uh, this area here. It feels kind of like between the, the green river of ooze and the harsh brown platforms, it kind of feels like a stage from Doom or Doom 2. Yeah, so the other thing I'm thinking about is we have the mines under Colony 6 with the same green energy energy at the base and we have the giant drill that was designed to harvest that energy so we're now seeing ether siphoning tech in multiple places not just the sword but wherever colony six was sitting on top of that also had another facility with that purpose of withdrawing ether but i still don't know we talked back then about was this a mechanis invention did mechanis insert the drill we memed on it and joked about
about how that got there a little bit, but I, I wonder if this, when I think back to the Colony 6 drill, I'd have to know, was this an effort of Ether's stirring, Bionis' Night the Awakening, and that drill was created by Bionis' denizens to say, no, don't wake up. We're gonna, we're gonna get some of that Ether out and uh, keep it sedated. I don't know. Again, once the game's over, if that question isn't answered, we might look up a perfect works and find out the answer. Who knows? But the Ether siphoning that's happening in the sword, it's not the first time we've seen this technique. Mm -hmm. Good point. Difficult to say what the origin of the drill is. I think that'll depend on how developed Colony 6 was before it was obliterated. If it was a, like, difficult to describe because nothing is like this on Bionis, but like a metropolis, like a highly developed, technologically reasonably advanced uh, location, then maybe, maybe they did make this drill, but what factory did it come from? Yeah, we do have the history though of there was a time of previous cooperation between Hyantia and Homs and all of that, so maybe Hyantia have been around for thousands of years and they, they've been having the second consorts, which are Hom consorts. I don't know, is it a case of there was a previous technological area, a little bit more advanced than the steampunkiness we get from the, the current colony mm -hmm. situations. Couldn't say. Also, why are they colonies? How long have Homs been around and why are they still in that colonizing phase? Good question. Usually you set up a colony and that evolves into more of city-states and branches out into different areas of governance. I don't know how to put it other than usually colony is kind of the first stage, not... You don't make colonies and then just maintain that status in perpetuity. More of like a settler's term. So in Bionis, there were mining nodes where there's crystallized ether that we can mine where we get crystals to forge gems. Now, Mechanis does not secrete mining nodes in the same way, but we do have these eggs, crystal eggs on a statue plinth that you can click. And, it's, and it is functionally exactly like mining nodes, except you are acquiring them from these already unearthed, developed, almost like ornamental things throughout the zone, but they're functionally the same. It's interesting that we can still have that mechanic in the game while being on Mechanus instead of Bionis. And they're called Gears, Tyler. Yeah, they're called Gears. They don't look anything like a gear, but they're called Gears. Yes. But we're used to things called Gears now looking like Gears, aren't we? Yeah, there's, there's a little bit of a mixing there because a lot of the giant Gundams in this game have actual Gears on them, but now they're not Gears. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We get to a large area and Mumkar in human form saunters into view here and he's doing his usual stupid dick face taunting at us and we want a piece of him. We want to take him out. And I feel like according to Egil's amusing to himself a cutscene ago, Mumkar maybe doesn't know that he's being kind of his experiment. Nate, can you speak to like any more about the conversation before the fight breaks out? Because this is where my notes start getting limited. I do have an interesting quote from Munkar here. Lay it on me, of course. Munkar's talking about the fact that, like, we now know that Homs are inside Mechon, and he says, can you kill them all? Who's inside? Your dad? Your mom? Your mom? I wonder who's inside. Who could it be? Your dad? Your mom? Maybe that special someone. So we're kind of, we're, we're being goaded into slaying face Mechon with Homs inside, which there'll be more on that later as he's prompting Shulk to evolve his outlook on things. To buck up his ideas. Buck up your ideas. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
fucking up his ideas. And he also mentions a special someone that might be inside, and Sharla reacts to that strongly as she approaches. Shulk gets a vision of her being struck down. He intervenes, blah, blah, blah. I also have a slight observation at this point. The game alternates between a cutscene in which characters are like freely moving about and taking action, and then it switches to a cutscene where everybody's just kind of standing around in their idle standing animations. And Mumkar's voice is like three times as worse in this second cutscene type. So I, I think there's like a different layer of cutscene builds they use. There's ones that are just people standing around talking, and then there's one that requires like full rigging and action and all of that with dynamic camera angles and everything. And it's probably like a different, I don't know how to word it, you know, like programming base that they use for each one because Mumkar just sounds way worse in the kind of idle standing around cutscene. So yeah, there's some exposition he delivers unnecessarily. The green energy is Bionis's ether, like we thought. It's Bionis's blood for the most part. And they are modifying it to break down anything made of ether, namely Homs, but it could be anything made from Bionis. Like Zanzo. Yeah, exactly. This explains why Zanzo was struck down for the most part. And it's kind of shown that's on uh, metal faces claws now as well they ask him something and he says i don't know about this technical stuff and then proceeds to answer all of the technical details we might have been curious about <laughs> so we kind of joked last episode that metal face slash mum car is perfectly fulfilling the role of the saturday morning cartoon villain here like not only just being a threat but delivering needed exposition to protagonists and the player viewer as well and now that i think about it he actually kind of does sound a lot like lord zed you uh, included a clip from lord zed in the last episode and that reminded me of his voice and i was like he actually kind of sounds like Mumkar in a way so a little bit of a connection there but yeah Mumkar is just uh he's not terribly interesting mm-hmm. I'm over it like you said last chapter we're done with him we've we've got his full motivation laid bare and it's boring it's dumb we talked about how it doesn't really justify his staying power in the series so he's got us trapped cornered surrounded so to speak as a bunch of other gears show up <laughs> i said gears as a bunch of other mechon show up they are the zord types yeah zord likes they are called the mass produced faces <laughs> and um you know just don't blame me i didn't name them that i'll talk about faces later we we haven't talked about that for a while that we st- we kept that to one of our initial sets of episodes talking about the absurdity of faces, but it's kind of unavoidable now that we maybe next episode we'll talk about it because they use it so nonchalantly in sentence structures that the sentences almost sound absurd in and of themselves. If you haven't been playing this game for a hundred hours, we now have mass produced face like guys, I need a little bit more effort here. They're joined by an array of giant green spears. The ones that, pierced Zanza's beard a couple chapters ago. Yeah, and I'm glad you you mentioned that because the party is standing kind of in the middle of a battle arena platform pretty much. It wasn't created for that purpose, but as game likers, we know that that's what this is. It's a battle arena area where a boss fight will take place. And as we get to the center of it, we're surrounded by all these spears strike down and jab into the ground. And it's like, I can only conclude that there's like a measure of chivalry or sportsmanship at play here when it comes to Mum 
car because when he summons his metal face to the group, these javelins all jut down to kind of block their path. They could have just killed them right there. Those javelins killed. Granted, he didn't move, but it's like it's capable of killing a giant. It's like that javelin could have just went straight for Shulk and cut him. Now, he might see a vision for that. We didn't, though. They would show us. Yeah, he, he didn't. It's just one of those things where I, I have to go with Mumkar is keying up a, a one-on-one or a one-on-three or something instead of actually wanting to just eliminate us and be done with us because mm-hmm. he, he wants to revel in his non-victory or and he didn't fare all that well last time so i don't know what he thinks he has going on this time except for the addition of the buddies helping him out similarly those buddies the several mass-produced faces kind of just dance about with idle animations along the perimeter of the battlefield for the duration of his speech instead of attacking in any way. Musing about his own stupid motivations or delivering exposition. So we're just going to fight him. We're going to kick his ass. And so we do. Fight's easy. We have an opportunity to give him a killing blow. Like a killing blow. Like a killing blow. Like he departs this mortal coil in body and spirit and we don't have to see him again, but we choose not to. Yeah, and I kind of, I I thought I was doing that in the fight because I was just completely trouncing him. The, the way in which I killed him, I, you know the Monado art where you make the really big sword and you just like blast them with it? I, I saw his health getting low and I had that one keyed up and I was like, all right, let's go for it. It's that same feeling of delivering, using your super big special move in a fighting game and having that be the final hit and it just delivers this like cinematic finish to it. It had that same feeling of the way in which I killed Mumkar. It, it takes me out of the experience to leave that battle and enter into a cutscene where I was just kicking his ass and I delivered this amazing final blow and then I'm sitting there in the cutscene like oh yeah we're, we're at a little bit of a stalemate here my guys are sweaty and panting and he's rebuffing a little bit and mm-hmm. I was like I feel like I killed him all myself already but I guess for story reasons he's not actually dead no he's not actually dead Dunbin is ready to lay on the killing blow. It's personal. Mumkar has to go. We've defeated him in battle for the fifth time. I don't even know anymore. And Dunbin is ready to end Mumkar's terror and suffering. But Shulk stops him. All of a sudden, he's no longer motivated by revenge. We've been motivated by revenge ever since the beginning of chapter three. But now that we have Mumkar in our hands, Shulk does a complete 180 and says, no, these are Homs. These are Homs in Mechon bodies. We don't need to kill them. And he stays Dunbin's hand. Get out of my way, Shulk! It's Mumkar! He's not a Mechon! Have you forgotten everything he's done? I hate him, Dunban, for what he did to Fiora and the Emperor. So of course I want to get my revenge. But face Mechon are not like the others. They're people like us. Are you really willing to kill another Homs? Yes, sometimes needs must. Even if it's Fiora. What then? When we set out, I wanted to destroy all Mechon. That was my aim. But now I know that there are people inside. I have to know why. Shulk is talking about how because of Tom's in there, we can't go to that link because what if it's Fiora? What if it's somebody else that matters? We had the slight allusion to what's that guy's name? I forget it every fucking time. <laughs> Charla's husband. Gadot? Y- yeah, Gadot, as I would like to call him. A little allusion there that he might be in one here. So Shulk's drawing that line. It's funny that Melia's standing right there and she just got roped into this whole revenge 
revenge quest and now he's doing the 180 and she's just kind of like oh okay well i'm not a homs but yeah i guess i I guess she's half homs so she half gets it she can half feel his transition there shulk does convince dunbin to not go for the strike and mumkar is relieved but he takes advantage of shulk's grace he fires blasts from his from the cannon on his back, which go wide, which crash into the stony structures above the natural amphitheater in which this battle took place. It breaks loose some enormous jagged rocks, which fall onto Metal Face, and Mumkar and Metal Face are knocked clean off the amphitheater and tumble down into the abyss below, the primordial ocean in which the Titans are standing knee deep. The way it's shot, the way the, the language of cinematography is telling us that Mumkar has undone himself and has fallen irreparably into the ocean. No! No! Not like this! He's gone. He feels like a goner. I think we're done with them. Yeah, Shulk even to go the extra length of absolving Shulk as super good guy, Mr. Forgiveness. They even give a little segment where Shulk receives a vision of Mumkar, don't do it. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. That's so stupid. Mumkar does it anyway and kind of seals his own fate. In that moment where he tried to strike back, Dunman also delivered a another samurai execution slice to the giant robot to kind of break him and Shulk free from the attack in that moment. A lot going on there, but... But suffice to say that everyone was justified. We're all the good guys. We didn't break our vow. We have a new lease on life. Innocence preserved. To not kill Mechon anymore, or at least something like that. A bunch of dick-pulling Disney bullshit. (laughs) Sorry, I don't know. I feel like morally and symbolically makes a lot of sense. Shulk's heel turn of his revenge motivation is baffling i don't feel like that was earned but if you believed it was earned then you would believe that shulk couldn't allow us to kill mumkar in cold blood although or or whatever i don't even know if it's cold blood but to get rid of him regardless he has undone himself and that preserves the moralistic integrity of everybody involved we can all pat ourselves on the back that we tried and it's just pg movie nonsense Yeah, it operates on logic that is kind of rooted in absolutism or simplistic ideas. A lot of media tries to do this. They do the quote of, if you do this, you'll be just like them. And it's like, no, there's actually a lot of nuance to all the ways in which we're different. It's not just broken down into one action completely transforms your character. Nuh-uh, Nate, things are black and white. Things are super black and white. I think a good example of the, if you do this, you'll be just like them, that we, I don't know, did you ever watch Breaking Bad? Have I talked about that on the show at all? Hell yeah. I love Breaking Bad. Yeah. So that path, Walt, uh, spoilers for Breaking Bad, by the way, anybody listening who doesn't want this spoiled, Walt slowly, methodically, and through various actions and compromises of himself becomes his own kind of Gus out of necessity by the end of the show like we start 
kind of not understanding Gus, who he is, what his motivations are, seeing him as this villainous figure. But we learn who Gus is by watching Walt go through the same struggles and processes of entering into this criminal empire. And we can kind of rewatch the show with a new appreciation for Gus based on Walt's transformation. That is an example of those little methodic compromises kind of undoing your character, but that is not what is happening here in this example. You can kill another Homs because that Homs is bad. Mumkar is a bad Homs. Fiora is a not bad Homs. You can kill Mumkar without <laughs> having to kill Fiora. It's pretty cut and dry for me. It's also kind of like how Batman could save thousands of lives if he just killed a few people but he has to like preserve his integrity and send them to the mental hospital because there's a small chance they might get better question for batman fans out there in the total history of batman did anyone ever get better at arkham asylum (laughs) i don't know good question there's probably like one or two but really if we're, we're looking at the spirit of the events of the comics, we know the overwhelming vast majority of people do not get better there. And that it's just an endless cycle of bad shit happening because he won't take the steps he needs to just eliminate some of these bad actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. I think a lot of us in life have a sort of romantic appeal to the reformed uh, baddie here. And a lot of, let's say, criminals in our real world, um, a lot of times they do. And I think it's worth giving them the benefit of the, of the doubt but my sister-in-law is a jailer and she has told me stories that have made me think that there are certain kinds of people on this planet that are literally not worth the air they breathe they exist regardless of your romanticism of the world and i don't know if Mumkar is one of those but some people are a living nightmare but tyler mechan got people inside soylent green is people <laughs> mechanis runs on bionis blast mountain dew <laughs> yeah baja blast mechanis runs on baja blast mountain dew it all makes sense now no it runs on bionis blast mountain dew mm, delicious i can't wait to taste that flavor See, it's all black and white. It's very clear, Tyler. Mm-hmm. Or turquoise. With Mumkar and Metal Face, Mumkar Face having parted ways here, tumbled down into the primordial ocean. Uh, we are going to take a break uh, for this episode here. We're going to call it here. We're going to call this episode here. And we are going to continue next time with the second half of chapter 11, in which we will continue down Sword Valley and infiltrate Galahad Fortress because there's a lot of chapter ahead of us. It's really, really exciting. Tyler, we have to give ourselves a moment of celebration of finally, in theory, being mumcar free. Smoke him if you got him. I don't, but I'm thrilled to be mumcar free. I can't wait for Larithia and Venea and Egil and whatever's going on with Zanza to step forward into the plot and Alvis's schemes and Dixon's schemes. I can't wait to spend more time on them. It's going to be great. Bye bye, moron. So long and farewell. Yeah, I'm also, I'm down for more bird ladies with tight leather bodysuits to be uh, getting some camera time over this douchebag. <laughs> Are you saying Mumkar doesn't do it for you? He, he's he got the, he's got the beady eyes that just uh, are unsettling to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not all of us are handsome in life. Thanks for joining us, everybody. This has been an episode of Hero with a Thousand Potions recorded on June 8th, 2022. We have an email, Hero with a Thousand Potions at gmail.com and a Discord 
with a link that you can find on our podcast description on our RSS feed, wherever you find our podcast. Join the conversation. We're looking forward to getting to know you. And uh, stay tuned. We'll be back next week with more Sword Valley and Galahad Fortress awesomeness. And if you're me, it was recorded on June 9th, 2022. 6-9, if you will. Oh, yeah, the weed number. The weed number, yeah. And, oh yeah, get stuck in. Oh yeah, baby. Alley-oop. That's all. <laughs> Ultimate himbo energy. Ah!